RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thursday morning is our Money Talks morning with Farzan Arani. And Farzan, you are fast becoming one of the most popular money talkers, whatever you want to call yourself, in New Zealand. And I think that's fair enough because people engage with what you say and they get in touch too because they they want to reach out to you. So welcome back to the program. Great to have you. And, um, of course, uh, last week I said we might be touching on commercial property. We'll get to that. And we're also going to do a bit of uh, house cleaning um, and homework before we get to that point. First of all, the house cleaning. People have been in touch. What have they been asking of you, Farzan? Um, they want to know what's happening and how this will play out. Uh, I also need people to understand you can reach out to me. Um, and what I do is have conversations with uh, people about around their financial circumstances, but everyone's financial circumstance is different. So I would want people just to understand that just listening to something on the radio doesn't mean you just think, oh, that's what's going to play out and uh, go and do something in your personal life or make a financial decision based on what you've heard on the radio because everyone's financial situation is different. So reach out if you want to have a chat, but please don't assume this is personal financial advice. Okay, and again, so, for people who want to reach yeah. out, the website is successsimplified.life. Successsimplified.life. And this is not yeah like financial advice being given out as you would professionally. This is just opinion and and kind of talking about the issues and letting people sort of get uh well giving them the ability even the i'm sure plenty already have it of joining up those dots so that's kind of what we're here for all right yes, so exactly what have right. been, people been saying i've seen quite a, a bit usually it's hey that guy's great get him back <laughs> yeah i've had some feedback as well some people um i've, I've had some comments fantastic fars and people also like that They've been explained these concepts in a simple fashion. Um, they can then understand, as I said in our very first conversation, it has been complicated on purpose, so you don't look into it. Um, when you understand the simple uh, way this is presented, hopefully by me, of course, it's not that simple because it's years of uh, financial and uh, banking knowledge that I've dug up as well. So just listening to it on the radio. And that's why I'll say Google it or Wikipedia or go out and research it yourself because people need to do a little bit of hard work to research. Um, but I also want people to understand when I say we've talked about some things like inflation and interest rates. I don't want people to think, oh, he said that house prices are going to now keep dropping just because interest rates are going up or uh, on the opposite view, somebody might listen to what they want to listen to and said, oh, he only said house prices are going to go up, so I might as well go buy them now. So it's just just people being careful about what they're listening or what they selectively want to hear in there as well. Um, I want people to go and research stuff. And as I said, if they want to reach out, I'm happy to reach out. My services are not for everyone. I'm being upfront. Uh, I can't help everyone, and I have to be very selective with my time as well. Uh, so if I can help you, I'll definitely reach out and try and help you. But people are worried about the housing market. And I think some of the stuff that I've said has resonated with people because they can see interest rates going up, house prices coming down. Some feedback is also fast in the economist. And last year I had some people after my webinars, there's a couple of real estate agencies who used to invite banking economists have asked me and invited me to come across and have a chat because they've somehow realized that the banking economist is only going to talk about what the bank might allow them to talk about, whereas I'm independent and I can speak my mind and I don't have to beat around the bush. I can say it exactly like it is. So I have some invites and I would 
Now, I'm thinking about trying to travel through New Zealand, at least right now while I'm in New Zealand, to try and do some roadshows uh, so people can actually speak to me face to face and also have open questions that can be answered. Well, it's really cool. And uh, if people have questions, you can send them in, but you've just heard, you know, Faz and Qualify. Uh, when he talks, it's uh, in the uh, context of a radio show. It's not sitting down in your office across the desk, Vaz, and, and and looking at all their individual circumstances. So that point's been well made. Um, I think um, that uh, we'll get to the commercial property, and it won't be a, a, a terribly deep dive, but uh, when we were talking last week, you kind of made the point that uh, with the new way of working, office space is becoming less in demand for you know, office work and, you know, something has to happen with the real estate. It's obvious what it will be. It'll be in a city sort of uh, micro living, uh, those buildings converted, et cetera. So we'll get to that. Um, first, though, um, let's get back to, I think we need to clarify a few points because some of the questions have been in this area. You know, the, the understanding by people of how, and this is new for me too, i got to say, how money is actually created you know, in the modern age. It used to be that it was, you know, you'd take your gold in and the, the gold uh, person would look after it and promissory note, we get all that. But it's completely different now. And there's a sort of like a thin air element to money creation now, isn't there? Yes, exactly. And and that's why I thought we'll just slow down just a little bit on this because on the first chat, we explained about the uh, the goldsmiths, how they kind of essentially became banks. But there's a banking license being handed out there. And uh, again, if people have followed the first three weeks, they will now understand exactly what I mean, because there's been a few questions out there saying, how do banks, when you say banks create money out of thin air, how do they create that? So let's slow down and explain that to people. What what I first want uh, people to understand, what banks say is not exactly what they do. And I mentioned this um, quite a few times already as well. I want people to understand the first thing is if we look, uh, not everyone's going to have an accounting background, um, but everyone understands hopefully a balance sheet. So I have assets and I have liabilities. Um, I might uh, own a house worth a million dollars. So that might be on my asset, but because I owe the bank half a million, uh, that's my liability to the bank. So that's pretty well understood. And that's your net worth. Um, what people need to understand is a bank's balance sheet is exactly the opposite of that. So what is an asset to you is a liability to the bank. And what is a liability to you is an asset to the bank. As I just explained, you owe the bank half a million dollars. It's your liability to the bank. That's an asset on the bank's balance sheet. So the bank is the only entity in the entire economy or the world who has an exact opposite balance sheet. Um, to a business or a person. Hopefully yeah, that's that's logical because of the business they're in, right? Yes, I mean, yes. Yeah. And that is the banking license. Now, if you go back to the first couple of weeks where I said they take our deposits, let me again explain. I, I explained in that week, they are not your deposits. So the banks say we are a deposit-taking institution. And as I explained, there's a fractional reserve banking, which means 10% is the fraction of deposits they have to hold, and they can then leverage the balance sheet upwards. As I mentioned, it is not your deposit. So when the banks say we're a deposit-taking institution, they're not. You are lending money to the bank because it's your asset and they owe you the money back. So it sits on their liability side of the bank's balance sheet because they owe you the money and you can ask for it whenever. And that is why they give you a small interest on it. 
So a deposit held at a bank is their liability because they have to pay it back to you when you want its own demand deposits. Now, the second thing we say is a bank can lend money. And I've explained this a couple of times, is they create it out of thin air. And this is the part where I can guarantee you, Paul, 96 to 98% of bankers and people in finance do not know how a bank creates money out of thin air. They don't know? They don't know. They don't know. First of all, in banking, we have segregation of duties. A loan officer just goes and creates a loan and he's asked to look at certain things. Somebody who's drawing up loan documents does only their part. Somebody else uh, creates money out of thin air. And now I'm going to explain how that money is created out of thin air. But no, most people don't know. Even seen and, and that's compartmentalized. So no one, or is it just the way they've always done it? Or is that uh, a purposeful compartmentalizing of the duties? So no, no one knows exactly in the big picture how it all comes together. What is it? Well, yes, in a way as well, obviously. And, and this is not just banking. Even, even when we think about the COVID thing, right? Or anything else, you it's it's the very, very top tier that knows the exact full plan. Not everyone knows the plan. So there has to be segregation of duties. And I also mentioned different people doing different things in different countries. So not everyone can connect the dots and bring it all together. But the industry will say it's also because we don't want to prevent fraud. We don't want a loan officer to, because there has been those kind of cases where bank employees have done certain things. So the segregation of duties for banks uh, to be careful and their compliance procedures and all that kind of stuff as well, uh, and risk metrics and all that kind of stuff as well. But let me explain how the money is created out of thin air, as we said, right? So the bank is not lending you money. As I just said, they're not taking deposits from you. You are lending the bank money and they're paying you a small interest rate on it, whether it's in your savings account or your term deposit. Now, the bank is not lending you money because a banking license allows them to purchase securities. Let me use that word again. They're purchasing securities from you. So when somebody says, Fazan, how do they create money out of thin air? The money did not exist in the first place. Let's say, Paul, you and I agree on you want to sell a house and I'm going to buy it off you. Now, we're going to just work a simple example of a million dollar house that you own and you want to sell. So I go to a bank and I say, I want a home loan. I want to buy this house for a million dollars. I'm happy to pay a 20% deposit. So I'm coming up at 200000 up front, but I need a loan of $800,000. So the bank looks at all my stuff, looks at my income and expenses and says, can you service this mortgage? I say, okay. So let's say they approve it. Now what they do is they create a loan contract and offer letter. When I sign that loan contract and offer letter, remember in the very first week, we talked about a promissory note. Yep. So now I have signed a loan contract, which is a promissory note that I, Faz and Irani, promised to pay the bank $800,000 plus interest over the next 30 years. The bank takes that document, puts it on its asset side, because that is a future income flow to the bank for yep. the next 30 years. It put, So it's purchased my security. Because remember, I've given them a promissory note. We talked about golden promissory notes. This is a promissory note that becomes essentially a security backed by a residential property. They put it on their asset side because they're getting income cash flows for the next 30 years. And now, because I have a bank account with that bank, remember, 
when I say create money out of thin air, they don't really do anything. They just credit my account with $800,000 to now go and settle the property. So they have a million, they, they have a loan contract on their asset side. And on the other side, they have a liability to me for 800 because they purchased the security. So they owe me $800,000 now, right? Because I gave them a promissory note. Right. So now they just credit my account with $800,000 to buy a house. And then I distribute it back to you and you've got that. So it is out of thin air. They yeah. cannot create that money till you don't sign that loan contract. And that is why I think last week I touched on a certain few things. I said, don't think that the banks are the bad well, not the bad institutions, but if I didn't go to the bank and I did not have the need to buy the house and I did not feel the FOMO, fear of missing out because house prices are only going in one direction, without me signing the loan contract, they don't have that ability to put it on the asset side to right. then credit my account with $800,000 to pay you. So it never existed before you signed that, that loan contract. Exactly. Exactly. So this is how money is created out of thin air. And I think on the first week also, what I mentioned was there's your fiat currency and there's your credit money. I said 70%, but about 85 to 90% of the money in the economy is your credit money. It's all wow. created like this. And again, when we think about housing crisis and boom and bust cycles, what I want people to understand was Banks were not always like this, right? There's incentives. I, th there's a saying out there, show me the carrot and I'll show you what kind of problems it can create in the economy. What I want people to understand is our banking institutions have gone too far in the speculation side of things. So let's come back to what the bank's purpose is. We have boom and bust cycles because the banks are supposed to lend into the productive part of the economy. Everyone needs a loan. Now, if I'm a business owner and I'm creating widgets that are, or I'm building houses in the economy, I'm helping the economy grow. There's a need for my product. I have to go to a bank, get a loan, and I'm being more productive. I'm creating more resources in the economy. That is what banks used to do. And that's why they were given the banking license. But what has happened is over the years, it's moved more and more towards speculation. So it is the yeah. bank's responsibility to try and lend money towards more productive part of the economy and not speculation. And people have been saying that for a long time, you know, that um, that the bias is the wrong, heading in the wrong direction. And these, because in the productive part of the economy, that's where you create real money, isn't it? Because you're selling more stuff. And if you're an exporter, particularly, it's money you didn't have in the country. That's Is that real money or is that fractional? It's all, all digits. Fractionally it's all it's all it's all digits, but the more again, that is balance of payments and stuff that comes. That is why a country is seen as more uh, productive or not. So China would have a balance of payments. Japan, uh, the average household saves more as well, so they have a stronger balance of payments. America imports a lot of their stuff because their manufacturing industries are moved across. So that's going into FX and uh, balance of payments and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's as simple as let's say, for example, New Zealand exports so much and it imports so much your balance of payments is do we owe more to other countries than they owe us so when we're exporting cheese and milk and meat and how much do we import in washing machines and cars and all of that then there's a minus or plus next to new zealand's name again like an asset or liability that's your balance of payments so that's why they talk about how bad is a country doing based on do they owe other countries more or less so uh, when it comes to importer when it comes to then that shift of the banks going to more speculative lending, is that easier for them? Is it essentially less risk? Uh, is this the normal way things happen in, in equivalent countries? Or do we have a particular bias towards 
the speculative. New Zealand more so, as I explained. Uh, countries like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, they've told us all of this. There's, there's, there's so many factors that play out here, Paul, but um, there's banks and there's the smaller banks in America that lend to productive part of the businesses as well because they're more in the local communities. Uh, German banks lend uh, to their local communities for productive assets. And, and when I say productive, essentially, because if I'm a business and I'm creating more stuff in the economy, I'm creating more jobs, I'm creating more profit, more of that circulates in my local economy and people are benefiting. This also helps with equality. Uh, whereas when it goes to the speculation side, and as I said, um, let's say I am all, the rich keep getting richer. I've mentioned that before, because when you go to a bank for a loan, the simple thing is the first thing. And I, and I, through my banking career, when I was in New Zealand and Australia, I saw Australia is more supportive of businesses in a way. I'll, and I'll be honest, uh, the banking system out there, out here, you, I'm not saying all New Zealand banks, but I'm saying as a country generally, because they have a bigger export economy and all that kind of stuff as well. But in New Zealand, the first thing you go to a bank and you say, I want a, a loan as a business owner. The first thing they'll ask you is, do you have a property? Do you own a property? Because that is the backing, right? Uh, the bigger uh, organizations and banks will also lend against the balance sheet of the business because you have assets. You might have stock or goods or um, uh, assets on yeah. your book. Yeah, yeah. So they lend against that as well. But that, more so of that happens in Australia. Um a little bit more uh, because they lend against your balance sheet, right? You have to give guarantees and stuff, but banks will generally tend to uh, favor you if you have a residential or commercial property because it's a tangible asset that they can sell. If I just lend against the balance sheet, if I'm a bank and if I'm just lending you against your balance sheet and yes, you have stock, in times of difficulty, I might have to take, uh, sell your stock for, let's say, 30 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Whereas a house, I know, is not going to depreciate that much more. But that has what has incentivized banks to even lend more. Uh, the speculation for investment properties that we explained last year, if investors are saying, okay, this is a good way of me retiring, and this is my retirement fund because I have five or six houses, then I'll do that. But it's only the rich people who already have that first or that second house and they built equity by paying down a little bit, but the property has also appreciated. They're the ones who have equity. So the bank will then leverage more and give them more. And coming back to the simple thing also, as I just explained on this, let's say, for example, I've done this with you right now. I bought your house and the bank bought my promissory note, credited my account with $800,000, now, in a year's time, that house is worth $1.2 million and somebody else buys it off me. Now, they're giving the bank a promissory note for a higher amount. And you see how this keeps going up and yeah, up. Yeah, you've up. paid your interest. They're, they're lending out more money um, and uh, have a bigger asset on their books as a result. Exactly. And that's why how bank balance sheets grow. That's how more magical digits appear on people's phones. And that's how they feel richer because hey, I've just got more digits and I've got more equity. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of what happened during the global financial crisis. I won't name the bank, but I was working, <coughs> sorry, uh, working uh, for a bank. What happens is a, a person goes, I can't buy my second house, my third house, my fourth house. So as these house prices are going up and up and up, you're building more equity. And the bank then looks at your entire picture. 
that is great when everything's going up because I've got four or five properties. So then I get into my sixth and my seventh. And the stories are the people saying, oh, this guy was only 25 and he now owns 10 properties and yeah, all I've of that. seeing those headlines. Yep. Yeah. Let, let's be honest. None of them own the property, as I mentioned before, till the last dollar has been paid off. And if you ask the bank to release your property, uh, most people will also just keep it on the bank's balance sheet, which helps the bank. Okay. Even if you don't know the money. But now, as I said, during the global financial crisis, what happens, suddenly there's a market knock on for 10, 15, 20%. And not just one property has gone into negative equity. It's two, three, four, and the bank will sell it off. Yeah. Because remember, they have to balance their, bal uh, they have to balance their balance sheet as well. Anyone who understands a balance sheet understands assets equals liabilities plus equity. So as property prices now start dropping, the bank can lend less into the economy. And that's what's about to come. As I said, when the times are good, there's more credit created into the economy. When times are bad and house prices are going lower and lower, there's less credit in the economy and less equity on banks' balance sheets because they have to protect themselves from the falling market. So they've really got no choice but to act, even if they like you or not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Credit contraction, that's what's about to come, whether it's in residential property or commercial property, they both sit on banks' balance sheet. So whether it's commercial property declining or residential declining, the banks will have to pull back on the credit yeah. because they can't keep growing it. As I just explained, when, when I sold my house from a million to 1.2 million, now they're growing upwards. But as house prices keep coming down, they have to credit contract because the balance sheet always has to balance. It's called a balance sheet for a reason. Yeah, right. It right. has to balance. Um, here's a question. I think uh, the government has been, and every now and then it comes up, talking about an inquiry into retail banking. Uh, I think they've sort of limited to retail. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, with how we know now, you know, the, the method by which money is created out of thin air and the quite big profits um, that our banks here make. They're essentially Australian-owned banks, aren't they? I mean, it's just a charade to talk about having an inquiry, isn't it? I mean, you're only talking about uh, bits and pieces, rats and mice around the edges on fees, et cetera, when they already know how money is created and the way it inflates and contracts. So um, I'm just wondering, I suppose it's a political move to call for an inquiry because people get grumpy when they come under financial pressure. But we sort of know the answer as to why they're making so much money. Do we? Well, yes, as I just said. So the, the journal entry creates the debt. So you owe them $800,000. But the, remember, I told you they charge you interest. So that's all pure income. Uh, if I give you 2% on your deposits, but I'm charging six or seven percent on the mortgage. That's pure income after I've paid for my staff and my commercial yeah. real estate that my staff sit in and all that kind of stuff. So as you can see, if I charge interest for money I did not have in the first place, it's just pure, well, it's just cream on top, isn't it? And so, that is why banking yeah. is so profitable. So on the balance sheet, then when they're determining a profit, is that actual money profit or that is the what's left over after calculating the expenses and the, the cost of business, even though it's not actual money. <laughs> it's not money. Everything is digit. So when, when, if you own bank shares, what do they give their shareholders? They give you a dividend. A dividend is again, just a digit on your phone. Wow. No one, there is, there is no, as I just said, 95% <clears throat> of the, what we think is money is just digits. It's just credit money. 
95% of it. And that's why I said we need more and more debt to create more and more digits so people feel richer. And that's what inflation is also. So as people pay more and more debt off, that's what's deflation in the economy. So I think you teased it last week and I completely forgot uh, to touch on that. You mentioned something called stagflation as well. So what happens is essentially there's still inflation in the economy, but pe- the economy is in a recession. So more, I, I don't know if most people have heard this, but they now officially say New Zealand's in recession, uh, Europe's in recession, most of the European countries are in recession, Germany's officially in recession. In America, they they very conveniently changed the definition of recession. Oh, as you do. Uh, yep. Last year, as they do, yeah, the government will just start changing definitions and they'll, whatever suits them, right? In fact, I can tell you even employment numbers that they're telling us are wrong. Uh, something talking about CPI, again, I, I, I explained that just inflating a balloon, that's inflation. So when they create more money, it's inflation. But they report on CPI, which is your consumer price inflation. Very conveniently, they'll leave certain things out of the consumer basket. In America, in fact, they don't even count housing and uh, food in the CPI basket. Which and, could and have experienced the most inflation. So yeah, Exactly. What, and those are the two basic things that everyone needs, yeah. right? But they'll say, oh, you know that car you used to get? There, there's this thing called hedonic adjustment. So they used to say, you know the Ford you used to buy in the 70s and 80s? didn't have mag wheels and didn't have a GPS and didn't have air conditioning and electronic windows. So technically, let's manipulate the CPI because you get so much more value for money. That's how they do all the hedonic, they call hedonic adjustments um, that the economists do to make you not think. So if if a government is officially telling you that the economy has 7% or 8% inflation, I can tell you the inflation is running at 12 or 14%. And there's a, a, a website in the USA, it's called Shadow Stats, um, if anyone wants to follow that. And that is the true figure uh, based on the Reagan administration. And after that, they changed how to calculate these numbers because they knew when they cut the link to gold that inflation was going to go up, but you don't have to let people exactly know. So they changed the adjustments behind the scenes. So this website called Shadow Stats actually does it based on how it was back then. And the real inflation in the U.S. economy is running at 18 20%. Well, I think people understand that already. Um, yeah. They don't need official figures to know that. Just go <laughs> go turn up at the supermarket or, or whatever. Okay, so, um, I, you know, thinking of that point I raised about an inquiry into banking, are they making excessive profits just quick, are they? How do we, of course, do we have of any- course, Of course they are. In fact, uh, when interest rates drop, banks make fewer the, the profits margins shrink. So during COVID, when the interest rates went down, um, the margins actually shrink when interest rates go up. They make a fatter margin, as I said, because the money didn't exist in the first place. And was what most banks are doing, even if you read in New Zealand or anywhere around the world, uh, your home loan will go up immediately, or at least within a week. Yes. But the bank takes about a month, month and a half to reduce uh, or increase your deposit rates or your term <laughs> deposit rates. That is, again, pure speculation. Anyone who's buying petrol at a petrol pump, right? When the price of petrol drops, um, they will take about a day or two before they drop it. But the announcement of crude goes up. And literally within an hour, you'll go to a gas station and the prices have gone up. And they'll say, what can we do? The prices went up. But when it comes down, they'll take a day or two to drop. They drag their feet. This is it. This is it. And something you mentioned about the 
banks and they're making noise about the banks and all that. Let's be honest, what happened during the global financial crisis, Paul? It was all residential speculation, as I just explained, the bank's balance sheet. So there's incentives for them to make money and lend more and more, create money out of thin air so people can buy houses and they keep going up. So they expand their balance sheet more. The CEOs and the senior executives earn bigger bonuses. So there's always incentive for everyone to do that. Uh, these are all tied factors, right? Yeah. But what happened was when the banking collapse happened, what did they say? Did they ever say, no, the regulators shouldn't have dropped or the Reserve Bank, Federal Reserve shouldn't have dropped interest rates so low to make people want to go and buy houses mm. uh, and warn them? No, they blamed the banks. They said it was a banking crisis, a global financial crisis. And to make an example out of some of the banks, they let the Bear Stearns and some of the Lehman crisis, we call it the Lehman crisis, they let some of the banks fail so they can then point a finger and say, look, it was the bad banks. Oh, but how okay. come some of the other banks behind the scenes were saved? Without naming yeah. any American big banks, how come yeah. they were saved? If anyone knows AIA, which is the insurance company, um, AIG, sorry, uh, which used to also be an all-black sponsor once upon yes, a time. They, they were, yeah. Yeah, so they had insured these CDOs, which are collateralized debt obligations. Again, uh, let's let's touch on this. So when what 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 happened in the global financial crisis is they give all these loans, then they bundle them all up. Uh, they go to the ratings agencies. Rating agencies give AAA rating or whatever, and then they sell it back to investors. It's an income stream. So what happens when the banks do this? So again, investment banking and banking is different. Um, not complicating that. And in one of my webinars, I also explained to people what derivatives is. Um, so not, not not touching on that right now, but these trenches of these mortgages all put together, they're CDOs, and then they're sold off to investors. Now, who are those investors who buy? These are the, uh, this is again interlinked, as I mentioned last time, these are the pension funds, the mutual funds, your insurance company. So what happens when you pay a premium on your car insurance or your health insurance they've got all this money they've got to put it somewhere to earn a return on it so when you make a claim or right now we had floods and insurance companies have to pay out they need a return on it so they buy these collateralized loan obligations to get a return and then a, a continuous income flow coming in right you you understand what i mean yeah, as yeah, investors yeah. buying a house you're paying the rental property that's income for the investor that's ongoing cash flow. So insurance companies and pension funds need that. They need to put the money somewhere. And they were the ones who then went bust. And again, this time around, it's they own a lot of government debt, which is about to implode in the next couple of years. Yes. Yeah, well, there, there seems to be this political link. I've asked, I think I mentioned it to you. I asked Ed Dowd, who was on the program about a week ago about this. Um, speaking of those, you know, huge um, financial management companies, investors blackrock is the one i think it has over nine trillion dollars of value under management that's a an eye-watering amount of money isn't it i mean it's just incredible amount of of money that they're in control of which gives them power and our prime minister is walking out the the front of of blackrock with the i think the agriculture minister so you wonder what she's doing there we also know that john key's got a background in i think foreign exchange kind of uh, financial part of, of that world. He's on recently or maybe is still on the board of one of the major banks. There seems to be a lot of connectivity between politics and money. And I guess you'd expect there to be, but why does our prime minister need to visit BlackRock? Is she looking for a job? That's what Ed Dowd suggested. 
it 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 could be one of those and i i know you really want to know the answer to this question let's say does theories also or, or, or his opinion or what he thinks it could be is also quite possible because um i think his name was paulson who was the um uh, who's uh, looking after the US Treasury. Yeah, Treasury Mr. Secretary. Yeah. yeah, so was was uh, part of Goldman Sachs. So they have revolving doors. What you got to understand, if you're such a big organization, there are revolving doors. So let's just say without, okay, we have a national candidate right now running for prime minister who used to own a big organization. And then at, maybe at some stage when you get out of politics, you again go into a big organization because you know what the country's policies are and all of that stuff right you know what legislation is being put into place so you kind of have a um front seat to what might happen or how the economy might play out over the next couple of years and now, of course they've got their connections as well right of course so, of yeah. course this is it so you're the first one to know if i told you uh, we, we even talked about that united airlines and stuff right so if you know first you yeah. can make a decision somehow but giving you an example you keep bringing up black rock now I'll, I'll talk about black rock what happened during covid um black rock is the largest landowner in the usa let me throw a number out there 120 billion in real estate right uh and the federal reserve gave cheap funding through back black rock gets it at zero percent interest rates but when we go to the bank we might have to borrow it at five or six percent the big businesses might get 2% or 3%, but these guys get close to as close to zero free money to then buy up all the assets on the cheap. So let's, again, I'm not saying this is why maybe our ex-prime minister was there, but let's say, for example, if BlackRock is sweeping up and buying all the houses on the cheap, is it quite possible that maybe they want to become a big landowner in New Zealand? If there is a market crash, whether it's agricultural land, whether it's commercial property, whether it's residential property, I'm not saying that. Or maybe BlackRock just wants a good investment. And they think if, if, if I was a billionaire, let's say, for example, and I wanted to put 500 million somewhere, I would not buy a property in New Zealand right now. But if I knew there was a crash coming in six months or 12 months, I'm not saying that is happening. Again, people don't need to misunderstand. But if mm -hmm. I'm a smart investor, I sit on the sidelines, I wait for the crash to happen, and now I might get maybe 20%, uh, 30% more homes for my same $500 right. million. <laughs> okay. does, that, yeah. does that, hopefully people can think through what I'm trying to say, but maybe, maybe, who knows? And, who and, knows? and, and the message from BlackRock could be, hey, we're here when anything happens, just letting you know we're here. Give us a call and um, we can make the, uh, what would it be, the landing not so brutally hard will appear to not be so brutally hard uh, when it happens. The other thing is uh, James O'Keefe, formerly of Project Veritas, now his own media company, caught out a BlackRock, a BlackRock employee, a recruiter, and he said on tape they buy politicians, 10K for a senator. So, you know, he said it, so you've got to factor that one in too. And I suppose... John Key's role is what you explained before, well-connected, understanding of the political process from being a prime minister, and still all those connections and politics there. So very useful to a board of a major bank. Of course it is. It's who you know, right? Who are you rubbing shoulders with? If I said I want to do something, but I don't know how to get hold of someone in that country, now you just said the John Key thing. Let's say, for example, John Key would know who would be able to get stuff done for them 
right? So yeah. we're also seeing a lot of stuff happening with, uh, again, without going into too much detail because it becomes political, but the Biden family in Ukraine and investments Whoa. and all of that. Yeah. People yeah, who that. read into it can understand. So, of course, they're buying politicians. It's a favor. They call it as uh, campaign contributions and all of that. So you can't be seen as giving a bribe directly to a politician. So it becomes a ca ca campaign contribution. I just, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm supporting... A national, or a book, let's say, or for a example. book deal, Farzan, or a book deal. <laughs> yes. yes, they just write books and, yeah. it's No one it's, buys it's, them, but who cares? That's not the point. That is not the point. We can at least say, well, you know, we um, we paid in advance, we got a book, and that's it, one way of, of um, at superficial level anyway, making it look all right, all above board. Okay. Oh, it's, it's uh, I think, um, um, again, uh, I, the Biden family, the son, supposedly did some paintings and they were sold for millions of dollars. I don't know, not millions, but they were sold. Now, who would have thought Hunter Biden was a great painter or an artist? But again, I might not give money directly. I might just buy a painting. And I know um, there's a lot of businesses, uh, real billionaires and millionaires in America who might buy a painting for tax purposes, let's say, for example. Uh, again, let, okay, let's not go there, but yeah. There, there, there's or you help out paintings. my son and, uh, and, um, uh, or we'll help you out, and and you'll buy my son's painting. <laughs> yeah, something, uh, something along, something along those. He was lines. selling the prints for seventy five thousand. They were just the prints, so you know, <laughs> you do that on a photocopier these days. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, the world, well, is, world has gone crazy, but at least some people are thinking for themselves and can see through this, right? So we think Western democracies. I keep saying Western democracies, but we because we think they're democracies. Yeah, they are for now. Um, but yeah, in Western democracies, we think that, oh, no, no, our country is a right and it's only corruption in the developing economies and all of that stuff. It's just that out here it's hidden. It's just, yeah, papered over and these kind of side deals. That She'll be done. right. She'll be right. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's uh, move to, um, so we know the engine that is um, um, uh, home property or private uh, housing. Um, the commercial property sector is something we don't hear too much about. It's not, you know, in the zone of interest for most Kiwis who just worry about house prices and their mortgage. But um, you made the point last week, and I've been thinking about this too. It's obvious that um, with the, the change in work culture, particularly in the office, uh, there's a lot of office space dedicated to that old way of doing things. There does seem to be a demand amongst workers now, particularly in that sort of white collar space. And employee employers are having to sort of offer this up to keep good people. Uh, they want to work from home a lot of the time, so it means uh, far less demand on the you know the square meterage of offices. So that's bound to do something to that market, isn't it? Yes, yes, of course, Paul. And and that's a simple thing. As I said, banks are lending for residential and commercial property. Everyone needs a house to live in. Um, we know house prices in New Zealand are really high because first of all New Zealand has a housing shortage um if you go back to week two again as I as I just explained why where does inflation come from and why are asset prices going up let's just call them assets right whether it's a house or a commercial property the more money I create in the economy but there's only 100 houses the same house that used to cost me 600 now cost 700 or 800 what is a what is a person like me trying to do by buying a house I'm trying to get ownership right so I can stay in the house for as long as I want rather than being reliant on my landlord 
kicking me out or something along those lines. So we're buying ownership rights and the bank gives me the right to buy that ownership into it. Now the asset's gone up because there's only so many assets. So there's so many houses in the economy, the more money I create, the more uh, it goes up in value. The bank gets to create more credit, the higher and higher and higher it goes. Same thing with eggs, as I said, right? So it is not just eggs because the prices are going up, but there's a shortage of eggs as well. So it's all about going back to the basics of economics, which is demand and supply. There's a shortage in supply of housing and there's too much demand. Now that might slow down going into the future with net migration numbers into New Zealand slowing down with COVID, there's fewer people coming into the New Zealand economy, but you still need housing. Now commercial property, on the other hand, um, there, there's a couple of differences as well. So when you buy a house, a bank might give you a 25 or 30 year loan banks officially know that commercial property is more prone to trouble or defaults and it's a higher benchmark. So generally when I was working in banking, they'd, they'd lend you about 65% LVR, loan to value ratio, maximum 70%. So you have to come up with the 30%. But the other thing is they also give you a loan of maybe 10 to 15 years, maximum 15 years, depending on what the property is. So they reduce their risk and their exposure on a commercial property because they know it's inherently risky anyways, because not everyone needs a commercial property. But what's about to happen because of COVID and people working from home is, as I said, we talked about culture. There's a cultural change that's happening. And people are going, everything's damn expensive anyways. Again, let's connect the dots. Petrol's more expensive. Food is more expensive. Everything's more expensive. So if I can just work from home and I don't have to jump into my car and waste $200 a week on petrol or diesel or whatever that is, that's a saving for me. So that's how the employee is thinking. The employer is thinking that way, but he wants them in because damn, I signed a 10-year lease on this two floors in a CBD office, and now I don't need even half um, what I've signed up for. Now, some of them are negotiating on their contracts. So I know some big businesses in the CBD are negotiating on the lease documents and saying, hey, can we get out of this sooner? Of course, they have to pay a penalty. But think if I'm the landlord and I own a 30-story building in the CBD, and again, those kind of buildings are not necessarily owned by one investor. Again, those are your investment insurance companies, your sovereign funds, your big, big, big pension funds. So again, this is connected because your, your Kiwi Saver fund or your pension fund might suffer when this happens. Hopefully people are connecting this. It's not one person who owns an entire 30-story building in Auckland CBD. But what happens now is there's a lot of people ne negotiating their lease agreements. They're either cutting them short or they're paying an exit fee and exiting out. And even if they're not, what happens is if I'm the landlord, interest rates have now gone up and I've gone to a bank and taken a loan on this. I still have to service the debt. Not only am I losing tenants, I'm bleeding tenants. My cost of servicing this debt has gone up tremendously or doubled. What happens? This is just a natural conclusion. So nothing I'm saying is rocket science. Commercial property is in deep trouble. Now that's your office space. Warehouses, on the other hand, because we saw it in COVID, what did we want? We want logistics went up, all that stuff went up because people are working from home. So I need food deliveries, I need parcels and all of that stuff. So warehouse spaces went up, especially if you're close to the airport because of import this, that. So there's certain, I'm not saying all commercial property, yeah. but it depends on where you're placed that you need to start thinking about these things. Now, I gave you an example last week when America, there's these big, big, big uh sovereign funds and mutual funds 
who own all these commercial properties, they literally walked in and handed over the keys to, so in America, you can do this. Even during the global financial crisis, let's say if I owe the bank 700 and my property is now worth 500, I can walk away by just handing over the keys. Yeah, As I explained in New Zealand, they'll still go after you for those funds. So different countries have different regulations, but they just handed over the keys to a mall. They said, yeah. not working for us, take it. Yeah. Take it. It's, it just doesn't make sense to do business in that kind of an environment, right? What do you do? You convert it, right? You, you, that's what you try and do. And that's then what you, they'll try and, and do, And then, yes. then people have got to be pushed into inner city to fill them up. Yeah, and that's what we said. It'll be tiny box living. Uh, the investors who initially invested it uh, will lose the money. Now can you connect? Maybe BlackRock comes in and buys those buildings at a 30 cents on the dollar, 40 yeah. cents on the dollar, and they will then put the money to convert these commercial properties into residential small houses. And again, BlackRock is a partner of the World Economic Forum, Agenda 2030. Come on, anyone with half a brain can again connect all the dots, right? So um, don't know how this is exactly going to play out, but I'm just getting people to start thinking about these things. And for the big uh, funds that can afford to do it, they they swoop in on commercial property, office property, let's say, and CBDs around the place. They get it, what, at a fraction of the, the dollar that, that it was bought for initially and the loans taken out um, to, to pay for initially. And then it's just a, a, a refit. And then they've got income, depending on tenancy, residential tenancy now, for ever and a day. Yeah, and it's UBI. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Come rent, see the rent out here. Now you have to go earn their CBDC and pay the rent. And it's not just the commercial property, it'll happen to residential property as well, because there will right. be big swaps of, when there's a financial crisis and during the global financial crisis, the people in New Zealand and Australia thought that was bad. In fact, countries like New Zealand and Australia did not get that badly affected. Yeah. It was mainly in America and a little bit in Europe and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the correction didn't really happen in these kind of countries. And um, let's just say over the next three or four years, we'll see what a correction really looks like. All right. Another really interesting chat, Farzan. Thank you for that. Um, and let's see what uh, people um, ask you and want to know about. In the meantime, we'll forward those through to you and we maybe chat about some of those next time we talk. All right. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening, guys. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.